Bienvenidos and welcome to the next installment of Lead Media Programming from Studio 54, campus of California State University, San Bernardino, the digital media platform for inspired educators, leaders, and community activists and advocates, taking our message directly to the people, to the gente. Thank you for sharing our common interests in the analysis, discussion, critique, dissemination, and commitment to the educational issues that impact Latinos. I'm your host, Dr. Enrique Murillo Jr., and this episode is a syndicated replay from season five of LEAD Summit 2014. The theme that year was Latino male crisis in the educational pipeline and the question of why Latino males are vanishing from America's colleges is highly complex. This panel was entitled Latino Students and the School to Prison Pipeline. At the time, the Association of Mexican-American Educators, AME, the journal, had just published a special issue on the topic which helped illuminate how the school to prison pipeline has been and continues to marginalize schools, communities, and families by derating the educational success and progress of our youth. Continue to enjoy the full value and complexity of this episode. We extend our appreciation to all our lead sponsors and partners, planners, volunteers, speakers, and panelists, production team, of course, affiliates and town hall chapters, and commend them for lifting voice and uplifting the plight of Latinos in education. Thank you. Gracias. Tlazo Camate. Next, we have Dr. Anthony Peguero, who will offer introductions and moderate the next panel. This panel was made possible through a working collaboration with the Association of Mexican-American Educators, AME, uh, the journal, the editors Oscar Jimenez Castellanos, Antonio Camacho and Patricia Sanchez, and the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Ahí te va, profe. Is this mic working? Okay. Um, I'd like to start off by thanking uh, Professor Maria and everyone with LEAD uh, for giving us the opportunity uh, to share some of our research uh, here today with you. Um, I also want to acknowledge again, as uh, Professor Maria just suggested, the editors of AMAE, um, giving us the opportunity as well as facilitating us having uh, this special issue on this very important topic. Um, this special issue uh, was, uh, was published in 2013, um, co-edited by uh, doctors uh, Donaldo Macedo, Lilia Bartolome, Victor Rios, and myself. Uh, this special issue focused on the consequences of the Latino school to prison pipeline. The school to prison pipeline is marginalizing schools, communities, and family, families by derailing the educational success and progress of Latino youth. It restricts and excludes youth from the labor market and promotes mistrust and resentment to toward authority, the criminal justice system, and all forms of social control. Um, we're gonna have a opportunity to speak to some of the contributors of this special issue. Um, um, we're gonna have three or four minutes uh, for each of the uh, contributors to talk about what they contributed as well as the issues associated with the Latino school to prison pipeline. We're gonna start off, uh, we're gonna go alphabetically, so we're gonna start off with uh, Jesus Cortez. Um, he's an Orange County community advocate. Good morning, everyone. So I'm gonna start off by actually reading the, the poetry, which was what I contributed to the, the journal. 
Um, I'm going to start off with a poem called Northbound Letters. <clears throat> I heard the news. You were back behind bars. The scars reopened. The madness must have taken over your soul, and I failed you. I did not embrace you goodbye. I did not say those words you might have needed. Now I write you letters that carry my soul to you behind those walls, behind those bars, physical and mental. I wish I could break you out with my words. That the brotherhood that binds us could break down walls and rip apart those bars. That your smile would return to you, return you to freedom. I remember you as a boy running free down those mean streets as I hoped you wouldn't follow the path of street warriors. The path to redemption lies in your soul, in the purity of your heart that will never be imprisoned. The next poem is called Incarcerated King. I remember you as a boy running playfully through the city among the wretched of the earth, those rejected by America, learning the ways of street kings. You grew up among the spirits of the departed, the children of mothers, the color of the earth, children of the sun, sons of the city that condemned them to live amongst a dying city. You became a king among children, a god of the streets among sinners and borrowers of hope, a hope that you carried in your pocket, a hope that would kill the hopes of others. Who could blame your ways? Who can judge your actions? Who is without sin to say you are bad? Who can say they would do otherwise? Who carries your pain with the same honor? You will always be the king of the streets that will remember your soul, your name, until the day you return. So I'd like to share a few words also. Um, these poems were written um, in honor of a friend of mine who has spent more of his life in prison um, and in juvenile hall than in the streets free. He was young when I met him. Um, I actually sent them the, the poems uh, to him in prison. I figured it was the least that I could do for him. I write, I'd write the, the poetry that I write um, in order to shed light you know, on, the, on the humanity of our people, of all people. I think me also as an undocumented person, we know what it feels like to be persecuted on an everyday basis. We know the, the, the weight we carry on our shoulders just for existing in a country that that feels we are not worthy of, of existing. Um, and just to carry that weight around, is, it's a heavy load. Um, and I think I let that load go every time I write. And I hope that um, we, we all here, you know, we do more than, than just research, that we actually go into the community and, and talk to people and work with the community and, and make sure that we bring about change that actually changes the, the structure of, of, the, of the whole country because the, the school reflects only the values that, that we are taught on an everyday basis by the government, by the media, by, by everything that influences us. So I invite everyone to, to be open-minded to, to everyone and, and to listen to all the panelists because I think we all have something valuable to share. Thank you. Next, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Eugene Fujimoto. Uh, he's an assistant professor at Cal State University, Fullerton. Thank you very much. I'm not nearly create, as uh, creative as Jesus there, so I, I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a research uh, study that we did out of Cal State Fullerton. And um, I'm actually here on uh, representing also my three co-authors. Um, and I want to thank uh, Dr. Peguero and the other um, editors for giving us a chance to talk about our work. 
But Yvonne Garcia, uh, <coughs> Noemi Medina, <coughs> and Eddie Perez were also co-authors of this piece, and I'm representing them as well. Um, and actually, actually, Dr. Don Person was uh, the, um, actually the uh, leader of the project as well. as one of my colleagues at Cal State Fullerton. The, some of the backdrop for the study that we did is uh, a relationship that Cal State Fullerton has developed over the last five years with the city of Maywood in uh, South Central Los Angeles. It's uh, uh, largely uh, Latino, Spanish-speaking, low-income uh, uh, neighborhood with a high percentage of undocumented students there. And we've been working the last five years in partnership with them to try to increase the college-going rate in that area. And so it's been a really fruitful partnership for, for us, and we hope for some for the community as well as our students learn in our master's degree program about what it means to work in a community in a, in a meaningful way. And so that's kind of the backdrop. And uh, as a result of that, we had did a research project and looked at the issues that have to do with leadership, um, both in the community and in the schools in that area. And uh, as we did research, we discovered things like that uh, in LA Unified School District that uh, uh, the Latino population in LA Unified graduates at about a 40% rate um, in, in one of the largest school districts in the, in the, in the country. Uh, we also discovered that um, if you are between the ages of 16 and 24 and incarcerated, um, if you do not finish high school, you are 63 times more likely to be institutionalized for the rest of your life. Uh, as opposed to if you uh, actually finish high school and go on to college. Um, and then as a result, we also found out that in 2010, there's over 345,000 Latinos who are uh, incarcerated uh, in state and federal penitentiaries across the country. So, so it's a major, major issue, uh, not only for Latinos, but for the country as a whole. So we decided to take a, a quick look at uh, seeing um, what was going on in terms of the leadership in the area. We were interested in whether the school to uh, prison pipeline, whether a legitimate alternative to that was uh, being able to create more of a college going culture. And so we wanted to know what the school leaders in the area thought about that. So we did interviews of school leaders, counselors and principals. And uh, it was a very useful um, study in terms of our findings. And, and in a nutshell, because I, we don't have too much time, I can tell you that um, to a large degree, the people that we interviewed see the importance of creating college-going culture, and uh, at the same time, they have not uh, taken any action in terms of being able to really develop the kinds of partnerships, uh, the kinds of community-based uh, programs, the kind of relationships with community that we need to have in order to have any kind of change in this area. So. So it's a, it's a major problem, um, and I think our study, um, as a result, um, uh, could go in a lot more detail, but as a result, I think part of our finding has to do with not so much demonizing the principals and the counselors as much as seeing kind of the larger systemic and structural issues that there are problematic. For example, we have uh, school principals who are needing to deal with immediate issues. Uh, one of them talked about when our kids don't have, uh, are hungry and they don't have shoes on their feet, it's hard to talk to them about college. And she had a box of shoes in the corner that she makes sure their kids have shoes. So there's really immediate needs that are happening for some of these leaders. And at the same time, there's a need for them to see the bigger picture and work to see how the communities themselves have many, many resources and uh, rich, cultural richness that we don't uh, capitalize on and we don't develop relationships around to be able to develop these kinds of uh, uh, the ways in which we can create more of a college-going culture for these young people. Um, so it was a, a, a really fruitful study, as I mentioned, and um, there's a lot of recommendations we make in the study, but I look forward to 
hearing more from our, our colleagues as well. So thank you. I'd like now to introduce um, Mario Galicia. Uh, he's a doctoral candidate, uh, sorry, Mario Galicia Jr., uh, doctoral candidate, University of California, Santa Barbara. Thank you. Apparently I have some fans in the crowd. Um, so uh, first of all, I'd also like to thank um, Dr. Victor Rios, who is not able to be with us today. He actually helped co-author, um, I say helped in a very uh, lax way. He helped guide this publication with me um, last year. And so it really is um, an honor to work with him, be mentored under him, and to uh, delve into this area of research that, you know, it's really at an emergent stage right now. So I do want to thank Dr. Rios, might be watching right now. Um, our article actually came about um, during one October day uh, in the middle of a four-year ethnographic research study. So um, I was on my way to a uh, local high school that we were observing at the time, and I got a call from the outreach worker who asked me to meet him across the street from the high school because the high school had been put on lockdown. Now, if any of you are familiar with what lockdown means, um, lockdown is typically a term that's used when a school um, is closed off from anybody entering or exiting its premises. Um, and during this time, what occurred was there was a lot of policing. Um, police came in, they closed off streets, uh, they held parents across the street. And so one of the things that I witnessed as I arrived was actually uh, parents that were uh, scared for their children, and rightfully so. Um, one of the stories that we heard was that there was a shooter that was loose on campus. Another story we heard were that there were some gang members that had gotten into a fight, and that as a result, some of them had ran into the school. So um, as you can see, there were a couple of different accounts that we were starting to listen as we initially approached this, this campus. The unique thing about um, what ended up occurring from the situation was that all of the uh, youth that were involved were actually a part of the group that we were researching. So in terms of access to provide us um, information, uh, data, and just their perspective on what occurred during that day um, was a little easier for us to, to take. Um, and so the accounts of the day are mixed depending on who, who you would ask. What we observed and what we were told by the youth were that um, you know there were police officers that came in with assault rifles uh, they were pulled out of classrooms, they were handcuffed, they were all put into separate rooms, interrogated individually. After several hours, they were put back together into a room um, without any kind of um, warning or any kind of heedance as to what they should do. Um, an hour later, uh, someone walks in, a police officer. They grab a chair, they sit it right next to a desk, they step on the chair, and they reach on top of the desk into a box. They pull a recorder from the box. And then they look at the youth and tell the youth, we've got you. You should have cooperated when you had a chance. Um, and so when we asked the youth you know, what they were discussing during that time, part of the discussion um, we've actually outlined in the paper. And what these youth encountered during that time is um, police officers refusing to provide them lunch. Um, and when they were asked to provide them with some lunch, their response was to throw a potato chip in the direction and tell them that that was their lunch if they so chose it. Um, 
and the similar instance happened to more than one of these youth. Um, so it wasn't just a single incident. Um, then when they were put in the room again, this is what they were discussing. They were discussing what was being done unto them uh, rather than what they had, quote unquote, done earlier in the day. Ultimately, um, it was not a gun that was uh, found on these youth. The story ends up happening that the youth were confronted by other people in a vehicle outside of a supermarket across the street from the school. And what occurred was that these youth, just in um, their exchange with the people in the vehicle, raised a water bottle and told them to leave. Come on, you lames, just take off. The response to that was that a parent apparently felt they had witnessed somebody waving a, a gun. So they went into the school, they um, let administrators know what had occurred, and then the administrators called for the lockdown. At which point is when the sheriffs showed up and the police department um, assisted with it. So, you know, there, there's two very different accounts as to what one might uh, feel that had occurred, but what we received from the youth was one that showed that, um, you know, they face criminalization um, at all levels even in schools um, by labels that might not even be um, cast upon them from other people. Um, you know, and, and so one of the things that we get into here as we describe some of these themes, you know, we describe that um, the youth have gone from um, learning to labor in their schools, producing a working class um, society to preparing them for prison. And this all came, you know, as a result of the 90s, um, Inst installing the zero tolerance measures across our country, across the US. And so one of these results is that we have police on campuses constantly surveying youth. So what the schools do is rather than take the discipline component of the youth, they pass it on to the police. So rather than taking care of an of a individual for a very minor infraction with a referral, maybe some restorative justice, um, they're sent to the police officer or probation officer, in which case um, more punitive measures are taken into account through the courts, uh, one would assume. Um, you know, we end up discovering that these youth feel they're segregated from their communities for many reasons um, as a result of this as well. Um, they feel that the policing doesn't just occur in their communities where, you know, if they're out in the street and they're quote unquote being deviant, um, you know, the police are going to run up on them. They're going to flag them down and stop them for what they're doing. But rather they're now at school as well and suffering severe punishment for minor infractions. And um, this ends up leading to the school to prison pipeline uh, because ultimately people are being pushed out from these schools for very minor, non-aggressive, non-violent infractions um, when we could have dealt with youth in a very different manner. So um, in 2011 when the Department of Justice decided um, to crack down on the school to prison pipeline by targeting zero tolerance measures. Um, this was one of the instances that that they actually exampled. They exampled, you know, youth being criminalized in schools uh, for discipline that the schools could actually take rather than passing them on to to local authorities. Um, and so, you know, I could discuss. I can give many examples as far as what these youth face as far as discrimination, as far as marginalization and segregation. But the reality is that um, there's, there is some things that we could be doing for these youth 
in order to help them out. And so one of those things that we can be doing for them is providing them with culturally relevant um, outreach workers, teachers, educators, so that with these culturally relevant teachings, they're able to forge um, a stronger allegiance. We found that the outreach worker that is, a, is in charge of this uh, group that we research, that he has a similar cultural background as the youth in which he works with. This helps them in establishing rapport. It helps them in establishing trust and confidence later on in sharing some of these difficult personal situations that they encounter in and outside of school. And so we have found that that cultural relevance model from the outreach worker helps. Um, we've also found that from an educative standpoint in other classrooms when teachers have brought in um, culturally relevant work, that that has also helped the youth in that place. Um, we need to invest more in our education. Quite frankly, um, there just isn't enough money in our education these days. Um, one key instrument that we could also focus on, on reversing the school to prison pipeline, uh, could be to implement restorative justice approaches. And I mentioned this a little earlier. Um, restorative justice approaches um, allow for closure to occur between um, the two, between the people involved in any kind of a crime or any kind of a situation. And so by allowing there to be communication and closure from both sides, um, you know, it allows for people to be able to move forward and not cling on to any one past. So, you know, we feel that while this um, article might note that there are a lot of uh, structures institutionally that are in place that hold some Latino youth from moving forward in their education and ultimately push them out and they end up becoming a part of this, we also realize that there are ways to stop this. There are ways in which we can assist our youth in getting their education rather than promoting them towards our prisons. Um, so I think that um, I'm, I'm done at that point. I, <laughs> I'd like to thank you all for your time. One last thing, I'd like to send a shout out to my parents that are in the back. Mom and dad made it out. They don't actually get a chance to do that often. So I wanted to send them thanks. I'd now like to introduce uh, Dr. Luis Nuno. He's a lecturer at California State University, Los Angeles. Good Good afternoon, everybody. I'm happy to be here. Uh, my essay is kind of an autobiographical ethnography of um, having a parent incarcerated. When I was um, 18 years old, my father was arrested and uh, taken away to jail. And I write about this experience, and um, I describe it as a process whereby the families of uh, men who are serving time are, are, are punished alongside with them. This term for this process is secondary prisonization. Um, I describe how being a child of a, a, a farm worker um, who didn't know, my, my father didn't speak very much very English very well. Uh, while he was in jail, we had to visit him in the jailhouse and um, Going to the jailhouse was a very uh, um, heart-wrenching heart experience. Um, going to the, the court, I was 
um, barely had graduated high school, didn't understand much of the language that was used inside the courtroom. Um, and I used that experience to, um, to try and educate myself about how the American criminal justice system works. While my father was incarcerated, um, we are originally from Raleigh, California. Uh, my father and um, my mother had children here in the United States. The rest of our family was in Mexico. So during the incarceration, there was the question that we confronted, do we return to Mexico? Um, is America no longer the place for us? Uh, we decided to see it through. Um, and at 18 years old, I moved to Riverside, got a job working the graveyard shift here in Ontario, California. Um, as I was working the graveyard shift, anybody who's ever worked the graveyard shift knows that there's a lot of, um, a, a lot of, of negative influences, um, drugs to keep you awake. Uh, sometimes you get off work early, but it's, um, you don't go home. Um, you go and continue the party. And as I was working the graveyard shift, there were uh, a lot of guys doing things that um, were kind of leading me down that road towards what eventually would become the prison. Uh, I met a guy who had just finished, had completed his, his sentence at Chino Man's Correctional Facility. Um, he put his arm around my shoulder several times, and I remember um, him sharing advice about uh, looking for alternate paths, looking for um, something different than what I was doing at that point in time. I was 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. I thought I could, you know, the, the American dream, you, you get a job and you work your way up the ladder of, of command and eventually, you know, maybe I could become a manager, maybe I could become a shift manager. Um, uh, the one person who offered me the best advice that I got during that time was uh, a, a young, um, man who had served a prison sentence telling me to seek alternate paths, telling me that the friends that I had at that time were probably not the best choice of friends. And um, I did eventually enroll back into a community college. I went to Riverside Community College. At Riverside Community College, I studied sociology. Um, while I was at Riverside Community College, my father was released on parole. Uh, he had to do his weekly parole officer, um, visit his PO every two weeks in the beginning and then eventually every month. Um, so I, I witnessed firsthand that, that um, status degradation um, where he was no longer um, just a Mexican living in the United States. Now he was a convicted felon. Um, the family, we were sort of, um, our status was degraded alongside with his. Um, once I com completed community college, I, I transferred to a four-year university. Um, two weeks before my college graduation, my father passed away. I never got to see him after, um, after I went away to college. And I've gone on to um, write about the incarceration experience. Um, for people who are, who, whose families are incarcerated, I now teach a, a course inside uh, Norco Prison with uh, about 20 of, 25 of uh, my students at Cal State LA, where we go and teach um, prisoners career development skills. We teach um, English for Spanish-speaking uh, inmates. 
Uh, we help young men um, earn their general education diplomas um, in the process of um, getting all the paperwork together to go inside of the facility at Narco. I came to um, realize that a lot of my students had a, a background that was similar to my own. They came from families whose uh, parent, whose father was currently serving time. They, they all had a family member who was um, currently incarcerated. And uh, I, I think that us who are privileged in a university setting, um, it is our responsibility to give back, our responsibility to build bridges with those folks who are um, inside of the prison walls to, to, to help um, make the world a better place. Thank you. I'd now like to uh, introduce Alicia Pantoya, uh, doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you. <laughs> I want to thank um, everybody in the panel and also at the summit for um, having this panel and having these conversations that are so important. Um, and I wanted to say that um, the contributions that I'm going to um, give right now are coming from my experiences working for a decade um, teaching participatory um, um, English as a second language or English for speakers of other languages courses and also working in family literacy groups. Um, what I'm going to do is bring up a few questions that I've been thinking about over the last year, reading the literature on the school to prison pipeline and also through my work with families um, in Philadelphia. Um, and then after I bring up these questions, I want to offer a few thoughts on these questions and, um, and then open up if we still have time for um, your questions. My first question is, um, I'd like us to think about what the affordances are of using the metaphor of a school-to-prison pipeline, focusing on the metaphor of a pipeline, and what could be the drawbacks of doing so. Um, to think about what additional sites and policies and practices, apart from the school and the criminal justice system, that also fundamentally shape the criminalization of our youth and our families, I think as Dr. Nuno has brought up, um, whose voices are being absent from our conversations around this criminalization of our Latina and Latino youth, um, whose experiences. And I'm thinking about the deportation of families, um, the incarceration of families, crimmigration, um, the experiences of LGBTQ students, um, those of us who identify as queer, um, who identify as multi-ethnic, multicultural, who are female, um, I think it's important that we consider um, how these different identities and experiences intersect um, to shape the kind of criminalization that we experience. Um, and I, I think it's important perhaps that we consider that the pipeline metaphor has been extremely useful thus far to get us to be enraged, to get us to understand that there's a terrible um, relationship that is taking place between the punitive school policies that are taking place and the likelihood that our communities end up being incarcerated, but then that also we expand uh, our understanding of what's going on and more complexly think about how, for example, the immigration system, among other systems, outside of the school and the criminal justice system come to intersect and interdepend um, on the other systems. So it's not only the school and the criminal justice system, but it's also immigration system or broken immigration system. Also policies within our schools, language and literacy policies that deny um, our students their ability to 
um, speak their languages, to practice their um, uh, literacy practices, to feel that proud and, and respect for their culture. Um, it's also important, I think, for us to think about how the privatization of schools um, is also contributing to the criminalization of our families and our youth, um, and high-stakes testing as another example. So all of these policies, um, these practices, I think intersect, come together, become interdependent, and mutually constitute each other so that it's not just a school on the criminal justice system. And I think this is important because when we think about how to address this issue, which I think you did extremely well thinking about what could be done to disrupt this pipeline, we also need to think about that part of disrupting this criminalization is uh, forcing our government and our communities to really um, change the, the immigration system, the current immigration system. We need to combine forces with other movements in this country that are working for equity. So the educational equity is also about equity in our society. And consider that a lot of these problems are not only starting at the school. I think it's dangerous when we think that it starts at the school, this pipeline, because then we blame teachers um, for things that are coming from outside too. So I think we need to think about the way in which school reproduces uh, inequity, but also the way in which we need to hold accountable uh, practices and systems outside of the school system for the criminalization of our youth. Thank you. Well, I would like to thank the contributors of the special issue. I also want to highlight that the special issue is uh, open access. Um, if you go to the, um, to the journal website, uh, that is something that everyone can do just via the website. Um, I keep getting the cue from on-side that our time is running up, so I don't know if we have one question or no questions. No questions, okay. So I, again, thank you very much for the opportunity for us to share your work. Um, I'm sure that all of us can, uh, if you address us via email, can address many of your questions. Uh, so thank you for the opportunity for us to share our work, so thank you. <laughs>